All right, settle in this morning to the space here and let me introduce to you the book of Daniel. Let me start with a, a bit of a personal observation and sharing. Uh, uh, I think most of you know that our eldest son, uh, Andrew, is uh, a chief of staff uh, in the Texas Senate. Uh, this week, our other son, our baby Jack, accepted a position in Governor Abbott's administration. He's be moving to the Capitol this Wednesday and uh, starting work the next next Monday. Um, as you observe our, our boys and uh, Susan and myself, I want you to know this was not the culmination of a well-thought-out strategy uh, to place both of our boys in, in government offices in the Capitol. I, I would dare say that that was the furthest thing from our minds as we were parenting two uh, rowdy junior high boys and two battling high school, you know, competitive brothers. Um, Susan and I have spent so much time in India and Asia that really uh, our parenting philosophy is much like an Indian parent. Uh, we didn't give them any choices. Uh, well, we gave them two. We advocated for Andrew to be a doctor, and uh, he went to the University of Texas as a biology major on that track. Uh, to be a, an anesthesiologist, uh, and you say, well, why? We didn't give him other choices. Now, once he got there, he switched his major and went into government, and that's fine. Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Jack wants to argue about everything, so the only choice we gave him was attorney. And that's kind of the Indian. If you know Indians and you spend any time in Asia, those are your choices. Pick one, you know. And uh, we really advocated for you know, doctor and attorney, uh, yes, they, they both are government officials, but what I want to say to you in fitting with our sermon this morning is that is by the providence of God. Hear carefully what I'm saying. God placed opportunities in front of them, and they had to take risks to leave the comfort of other plans, things that they had prepared for for years, uh, Spencer, you uh, phrased it to me the other day, had to take the jump, had to take the jump, the leap to embrace an opportunity that's presented to you and see what happens. Uh, as much as Susan and I would like to be in control, and as much as you as a parent or a young adult would like to be in control, the point of my message this morning, and really the point of Daniel, is that we have to pause and recognize that God is the one in control of our lives. The book of Daniel is obviously of particular interest, Susan and I, because it's about boys being raised in the capital. Uh, it's a little bit similar, but not so similar to an Esther story, but it's about a, a capital setting and government officials and and whatever, but this book's going to be important to you, as you're going to see very quickly this morning, because government work is not the only honorable work. The work that you do every day is also honorable. The work you do every day is also part of God's plan. Whether you're helping people retire and plan for retirement, or whether you're... Uh, uh, 
healing people in the hospital mat or whether you're planning out, Eric, the, the highways and the way we get water to our houses as an engineer, whatever you're, whether you're educating people in the classroom at the university, whatever you do, it brings quality to people's lives. It helps us be safe. It helps us be healthy. It helps us prosper. And your work is honorable and your work is part of God's plan for this present moment. And despite present appearances, God is in control. Now, you're going to hear that statement a lot in this series. We believe that God is in control as Christians, yet we are held in tension this morning between our belief that God is in control and the fact that our present circumstances are less than desirable. This is the tension in which you live. God is in control. Everything's not perfect in your life. You're struggling with some issues. And you're held in the tension between two truths. That your circumstances are not always perfect and yet God is in control. And you're going to have to find a way to reconcile those two things and live at peace in that tension. This morning you may be discouraged because you're paying $5 a gallon for gasoline. You may be frustrated at the economic conditions of having lost half your 401k under President Biden. You, you may be frustrated because you cannot find employees to hire to run your business. I know many people here are in management and that is a real challenge at this present moment. You may be stressed because you cannot afford groceries. I think we clocked a $700 electric bill this month running the AC. Uh, anybody, you know, are feeling our pain. You're all living the same situation we're living right now. We're stressed because of social unrest. Hardly can turn on the TV without somebody screaming and yelling and picketing and protesting and, and trying to shoot a police officer and trying to harass somebody and trying to, trying, trying to stir up social unrest. You may be in stress this morning because you're having some relational conflict somewhere in your, in your family. Listen, even if you're single, you may find yourself, well, you will find yourself many times struggling just with inner, inner turmoil. I bring these things up because all of these things make us ask, where is God? If I'm dealing with this, where is God? If I'm struggling like I'm struggling, and I know that God is in control, God, where are you? And why is evil dominating the news? Who is in charge of this present situation? The book of Daniel presents a very encouraging message to people like us who are stressed out. Uh, to stressed out people trying to live a Christian life faith in a Christ-hostile world, the book of Daniel is filled with beautiful examples and answers. The overall theme of the book is this. Despite present appearances, God is in control. Now, when you hear this statement, the first words are going to be mine and the last four words are going to be yours. My words are, Despite present appearances, your words are, I want you to get used to that. Because despite present appearances, 
you got it. If you'll learn this, it's going to help you come to grips with the tension that you're living in every day. Yeah, we buried a loved one. That's the first line. But listen, God's still in control. Yes, we're having some struggles, but it doesn't mean that God's lost control. It means we need to open our eyes and look to see what God is trying to do through our lives right now and how it's going to play out for your benefit, for God's glory. He's already promised it will in Romans 8, 28, and he's in control. Now, let me give you an introduction to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel can be divided into two distinct halves. Uh, The first six chapters, chapters 1 through 6, tell six unique stories about Daniel and his three friends living out their faith under pressure. Chapters 7 through 12, which we're not going to study in this series, shift completely to a different genre of literature. Uh, It is is apocalyptic in uh, writing style. It's very much like the book of Revelations. It's visions and beasts and this and symbols and, and, and all kinds of prophecy. It's like the book's divided into two distinct. The first is going to tell like a story. That's what we're going to deal with. The last half is prophecy and apocalypse. We'll deal with that at another time. Each of the first six chapters brings a new crisis. So you'll relate. You know, we wake up every week and we wonder what new thing we're going to deal with. It's just like reading through the book of Daniel, except they leap years in the book of, of Daniel. Each chapter presents a new crisis. They face deadly circumstances with each chapter they rise the christians arise the god people rise to meet the challenge of living as god's covenant people even though their situation is less than ideal they have ideal they have confidence that god is working and they're going to they're going to prosper god is going to bless them even in the mess they are living in the main character as i say often The main hero of the story is going to be God. It always is in these stories. Now, the human characters is what we get really intrigued with. But the main character behind the human characters is always God. He's the hero of the story always. It's his book, after all, and it's his story that's being told. And so, as always, you can expect great things from God uh, in a study of the book of Daniel. Uh, From a human standpoint... The main characters are Daniel and his three friends, which we'll get to in a minute, and then a series of kings, very famous, legitimate emperors uh, that you can find in the history books, King Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Cyrus, all of these people are going to show up in the story as Daniel and his three friends work in the administration and in the palace of these famous uh, emperors. Uh, A word of warning as you read these Old Testament stories, a word of warning about how you interpret the stories of the Old Testament. Many sermons, and I'm guilty of this as well, many sermons lead the audience to make an interpretive mistake by asking the audience, uh, it's almost like we, like, uh, we are not growing up in our preaching We're still telling Sunday school versions out here to the adults, and uh, we need to be telling some different stories. A lot of my sermons are PG-14 and greater, and you say, why? Because it's my audience, and it's time for you to grow up and understand what's really happening in these texts in the Bible. And uh, the same this morning, uh, uh, these are not 
Sunday school stories, and we make a mistake sometimes by just tr- keeping them on a very childlike level and asking our audience to either uh, take the characters of the story and classify them as a villain or hero. Daniel's a hero, Nebuchadnezzar is a villain, therefore go and be like Daniel, therefore don't be like Nebuchadnezzar, and that's the moral of our story. That's not the moral of our story, and that's not really even the story that's being told. That's just a very simplistic seven-year-old version of these stories, and we'll present you the adult version of these stories. Just because Daniel is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, not mentioned by name, but definitely alluded to very clearly, just because Daniel is in the hall of faith does not mean that Daniel's behavior is prescriptive or normative for all of God's people in all periods of time. You want me to say that in a simpler way? Let me think. You're not being asked to do everything Daniel did. When you see these people in the Old Testament do things, quite often I tell you, you should never do what they're doing. What they're doing is abhorrent and, and terrible, and the, the, their behavior is being put out there like an open book for you to read. God's not saying, see, do what they did. No. Many times their behavior is put out there, and God's saying to you, don't do what they did, even though they're my people. And the Old Testament has this circling theme I keep showing you, that even though God's people are not doing right, sometimes God raises up a Gentile outside the covenant and they're more righteous than God's people. That's a recurring theme. So when we're looking at uh, these stories in Daniel, uh, just because Daniel is a sometimes a vegetarian does not mean that that's prescriptive for you. Some of you should be very happy right now. Some of you grillers should be thrilled. You know... Just because Daniel's a sometimes vegetarian does not mean that God is saying to you, see, this is for all Christians in all periods of time. Just because Daniel prays three times a day with his window open towards Jerusalem does not mean that you have to go find your east-facing window, lift it up, open the blinds, and kneel before it and pray towards Jerusalem. That is not prescriptive for you, even though that is how Daniel prays. These stories are not primarily to teach you how to act but to teach you how god acts for your redemption this is what your focus is 597 bc is where we start and 597 bc is not your setting 2020 2021 2022 2023 2024 man we're in this very modern era Way down the line in history now. 597 B.C. is not our time. Yet, there is a message here for us in these ancient stories. And the message is that we are to adopt a biblical worldview. We are to live with a worldview looking through the lenses of the cross that despite present appearances... God is in control. That's what the author is driving us to see. Living in the power of God right now in the modern era, living in the power of God will cause you to live with a hope and to live with an assurance uh, that you are aware that God is bigger than everything you're dealing with, 
that God is absolutely seeing everything that you're seeing, that God is aware of everything that you're aware of and so much more, that God sees your life and He's more powerful than any problem you're facing. He is able to reverse the curse. He is the king of flip the script. He is the absolute master of the plot shift in a story, as I have now shown you for 25 weeks. God can take a story that's driving hard in one direction and in one event reverse the whole outcome of the story so that it comes out in a whole nother way. He turns, from the book of Esther, he turns the tables for God's people so that everything comes out correctly. So the setting of our story in Daniel is the 6th century before Christ. You are brought into the Near East, ancient Near East, both Judah, southern kingdom of Israel, and then Babylon, modern day Iraq area, for the whole setting of the story. 6th century B.C., Babylonian Empire is rising to power. Uh, When I told the story of Esther, that's the next empire that's coming. We'll also see that in the book of Daniel. We've backed up just a little bit in time. Babylon is rising to power now. And uh, uh, you're going to see some fabulous things. Daniel chapter 1 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Babylon invades Jerusalem, 597 B.C. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Who delivered the king of Judah? The Lord delivered God's people into the hand of the enemy. Wow. You see what I'm saying now? Despite the way things are looking, you're seeing God's in control of what's happening. And three times you're going to see God gave in this chapter the Lord delivered God at work behind the scenes. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Now these articles, we'll get to in a second, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put them in the treasure house of his God. So now what happens here is our story begins where another story ends so that you'll understand where our story is going i need to just tell you in one minute the backstory of what got us to the place where you would open your bible and read god delivered his people into the hands of the king of babylon because you're right now saying why would god do that (laughs) what's wrong with god that he lets his people be overrun by a foreign invading country what's up with god what with if this is the circumstance where is god right now and why does the scripture say god is the one who set this in motion well here's the back story the back story is this god in the book of genesis extended a special relationship to a man named abraham and his wife sarah and god it's called a covenant relationship It's a very special kind of relationship. It's almost like marriage vows where God says, I'll take you to be my people 
and, and you take me to be your God, and, and, and we're going to cut a covenant, make sacrifice, and we're going to walk through, and we're going to, it's a solemn ceremony, and we're going to have a special relationship. Because I can't find a nation of people that want to be God's people, and, and this is why you were created, but creation has rebelled against me. So let's just make a whole new nation from a man and a woman who can't have kids, miracle story, and God says, let's just start a whole new people, you're going to have a special mark, Abraham and all of your, your male descendants, and we're going to have a covenant relationship, and this will be the beginning of a new nation where every person in the nation has a covenant relationship with God. There'd never be another, there was no nation where everybody was God's people. And what he's saying is that's what we're going to do. We're going to make a nation where everybody is one of God's people. Well, let me fast forward some hundred years. They eventually prospered as a family and multiplied into, you know, uh, some uh, uh, small number. I would say small number, not a huge number. But then when they were in captivity in Egypt for hundreds of years, they multiplied this family into about a million people, we estimate. So now there are slaves in Egypt. There's at least a million of them. And then Moses delivers God's people from Egypt. Well, God delivers God's people, but again, he uses Moses. Takes them to Mount Sinai, and the first thing God does is says, I want to renew our vows. That agreement I made with Abraham, I want to renew that agreement because you're Abraham's children, and I want to, you're God's people. This is a nation where everybody's supposed to have a, a relationship with God. You're my covenant people. And then in that meeting and, and in subsequent writings of Moses, it is written out the details of those agreements that they made with God. And I'm going to read now part of that. This is what happens if you break the covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 64. The Lord, if you break the covenant, the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. Among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind and eyes weary with longing and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life. Well, that's ominous, isn't it? You say, well, I... I why would I want to be in a covenant agreement with God? Well, because that's where it's all at. The point is, don't worship idols. <laughs> if you worship idols and you break the covenant by worshiping idols, God said, I'm going to be so ticked. I'm going to just take my hands off and these foreign countries are going to overrun you. And when they do, if I pull my protection back for a second, you'll be taken captive and you'll be scattered among all of these nations and life will be turmoil as a bunch of captives living in a foreign nation now when the book of daniel opens that very judgment is now playing out and falling upon the people of judah because of their idolatry so now when daniel opens and you see the lord did this and now nebuchadnezzar and you're like wait what happened that's why it happened because god's people for hundreds of years kept going back after idolatry and god said i'm done with it as a parent, you feel that pain? I'm done with it. No more. I'm tired of talking. I, I'm tired of correcting you. Okay, just let, if you don't want to worship me and be my people, I'll just pull back a little bit. We'll see how it goes. And boy, here comes Nebuchadnezzar in. And now 
action begins in our story. The Babylonians take spoils from the temple of God. We read articles from the temple. Those are uh, uh, tools, hooks, uh, knives, cups, platters, goblets, the things they used in worship to make sacrifices, the things they used, the golden candlesticks and all of those things they used in worshiping God in the house of God. Those things were made from silver and gold and precious jewels. Man, there are tapestries in there. The treasures of Israel are there in the temple. And when the Babylonians invaded, they took stuff and they took the treasure out of God's house and they took it back to Babylon and they put that treasure in the house of their false god in Babylon. Now the reason the author is telling you this is because it's going to be very important, this foreshadowing, it's going to be very important in a few chapters, you're going to see those goblets show up again in just a little bit. We'll save that for a future sermon. From a secular worldview now, Babylon's invaded and taken all the treasure out of God's house back. And from a secular point of view, if you step back, you would say, wow, Putin's army's shaping the news of Europe. China's army's shaping the news of Asia. America's power is shaping the, 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 uh, uh, the world and keeping other powers in check as the policemen of the world. And if from a secular point of view, you would see the strength of military might and say, these are the things controlling and shaping world events like a giant chess game with the three really strong powers in the world. If you had lived in 597 BC, 6th century BC, you would look at, from a secular point of view, at Nebuchadnezzar's army and you would say, the Babylonian army is shaping world events. But if you have a biblical worldview, the Bible takes us behind the scenes and the book of Daniel pulls back the curtains and says to every believer, let me remind you that God is actually the one in control. Let God work. And if you have a biblical worldview and eyes to see it, you guys are going to see God at work right here in your own community, in your own job, in your own family, in your own relationships. You're going to see God at work everywhere if you have the spiritual eyes to see it. All right, all the stuff's been taken. What happens next in the story? Well, now the king orders his officials to take more than articles and goblets. Now King Nebuchadnezzar orders them to take people, which brings us to our second big thought taken. Daniel 1.3, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, Chief of the court officials. I want to pause right here because I don't know what translation everyone uses. Is in IV. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials. Some versions right here will say Ashpenaz, chief of staff. And so it's the king's chief of staff, like the guy right there all the time. If you ever watch a, a movie that goes back into the kings and queens of Europe and you see those kind of ancient settings, there's always that one person that's right there by the king all the time you know, listening and doing and what, right there. Ashpenaz, chief of staff, chief of the court officials. In the ancient translations, uh, I think KJV, uh, there's another one. It says uh, Ashpenaz, chief uh, of the eunuchs. Chief of the eunuchs. We'll get to that in just a minute. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and from nobility. 
So they're going to kidnap and enslave children from the ruling class families. Young men, boys, okay, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Okay, so now we understand what's happening. Now the king sends the official and says, now I want you to go to the conquered people, and from God's people I want you to take, not everyone, just the best of them. They'd be young men of the royal line. They had to possess impeccable physical traits. We don't want any guys without abs. We want them tall, we want them handsome, we want them sharp. They probably had these, you know, every, every generation has its own thing of what's handsome, you know. They probably had these curly beards and they probably had a good head of hair. And, you know, you're saying, really? I mean, really. That's how particular they are in, in this type of a setting. A handsome, they had to possess the highest intellectual capacities. You say, well, how are they going to know? Because I know the handsome jocks at my school did not have the highest intellectual capacities. <laughs> so they're trying to find the right balance here. They're trying to find the ones that are, you know, handsome, like you, Matt, handsome and smart. That's what we're looking for. What we call that, the whole package, right? For me. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Well, we're learning a lot really quick here in the story. So these guys are taken, and they're taken back to Babylon. They're under Ashpenaz, the chief of staff, who's a eunuch. They are forcefully enrolled in Babylonian U. Uh, just having some good university conversations this morning with, with Ashley and others. Where, you know, what's the next few weeks look like? You get ready to go to school. Uh, luckily, you're not being kidnapped and taken to a school against your wishes and forced to, to take a major you don't want to take. And if you don't make good grades, probably executed, which is good for motivation to study, by the way, but not good for quality of life. Yeah. So that was probably nowhere in your university orientation, was it? And if you don't study hard, the dungeon is down here, and we will hang you by your thumbs until you... Uh, it's not like that. So these guys were taken to Babylon, and, and they are enrolled in what I want to call the Magi University. If you've ever heard me preach from Christmas the story of the Magi, you're understanding the connection here. These are the wise men, the wise men University of Babylon. And in this program, they had to master the Aramaic language of the Chaldeans in three years. They had to get a Juris Doctorate, a law degree of the Chaldeans in three years. They had to learn all the culture of the Babylonians simultaneously in three years. You talk about a tough, rigorous program. Some of you have gone to law school. Uh, Sean, I don't know what it would be like to enroll in law school and it's in a different language with all the reading and analysis you have to do to figure out what the law is saying and then write papers on that, can you imagine if it was all in like some language you have no idea and you're having to both learn the language and the law at the same time? What a challenge that would be. These guys uh, are incredibly bright. 
They're enrolled in the University of the Magi. They have to learn. At the same time, they're learning language and law. They have to learn all the, ma- the arts of mantic wisdom. That's probably not a word you're familiar with, so I've got the definition here for you. They have to learn the arts of mantic wisdom. Mantic means relating to divination or prophecy. If you don't know what divination is, I anticipated this. One more definition. Divination, the practice of seeking knowledge and future by an unknown supernatural means. Is everybody understanding what kind of school they're being enrolled in? Harry Potter U is what they're being enrolled in. They're being enrolled in, what is it? Hogwarts. Thank you. I knew there were some nerds in here. We're glad to, you have identified yourself. Uh, and I'm sure you're in good company, I bet. I see some others around the room. Uh, so they're enrolled in Hogwarts Law School where they only speak Aramaic tongue of the Chaldean. And you better make straight A's because you're captives and that's what you're here to do. And if you don't prove useful to the king, well, then what use are you? We'll find a nice job changing chamber pots for you. So they're enrolled in Magi U. They're clearly being trained in the arts of divination. What we know about this is they're being trained in the arts of divination through astrology, through celestial phenomenon, through the reading of sheep's livers, through the reading of the contents of the cup. Uh, And you're like, no way. Yes, way. And through these means, they're learning how to predict world events and tell the future you say this is whacked well we often pass over it but when joseph was abducted sold into slavery finds his way into the prime minister's seat of the country of egypt i think it's about genesis 44 chapter 44 ish if you want to read that this week in genesis chapter 44 you remember the brothers come to visit when they get back home there's a cup in their sack when they pull the cup out they said oh no That is the cup which Joseph tells the future. It's the divination cup that was put into their sack of grain. Somebody swiped the crystal ball from Egypt. Can you imagine what kind of trouble that would get you in? If you swiped the goose that laid the golden egg from the giant, that's what's going on. Uh, 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 Joseph had a divination cup. You can read about it in Genesis 44. So when I say to you that God tells you these stories and he's not asking you to enroll in Hogwarts, you do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying this is what happened. I'm not saying it's prescriptive for you. As a matter of fact, witchcraft and and, uh, sorcery and all of this is forbidden for Christians. Everybody with me? You say, well, then what? I can't answer that. I'm saying this is what they were forced to do as captives, and it's what they did in their assimilation into the culture. I'm not saying I recommend that to you. I think it'll get you, you know, demon-possessed and off in dark arts and a bad place in your life. Don't do it, okay? I'm not downplaying Harry Potter. It's entertainment. Have a nice time, okay? All right, so there's where we are in the story. Not only was Daniel and his friends enrolled into Magi University. They took the courses, and lo and behold, three years later, they're the ones that graduated summa cum laude. Do you know why? Because despite being captives, guess who's in control? 
Ah, here's the story. Daniel 1.6. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There's Daniel and his three friends. Those are not the names you know them by, though, is it? No, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, the name Shadrach. To Mishael, the name Meshach. To Azariah, he was given the name Abednego. Abednego. While this seems benign, okay, they're in a new place, they got new clothes, they've got a new education, so they give them new names. While it seems benign to us today, in the ancient Near East, a person's name was essential to their identity. All of these names, Hananiah, Azariah, Misha, they all mean God is something. They're all references to Jehovah God. The name identified you, your personality, your, your expectations, who your God is. The Babylonians took them, enrolled them in a re-education camp filled with mantic wisdom, stripped away their Jewish identities, and replaced their Jewish identities with names and identities, all of which are connected to Babylonian idol gods. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all mean idols of Babylon something. So they gave them idol names and totally gave them a new identity. If that's not enough, the story suggests that they underwent an extreme transformation when their masculine identity was taken from them, for they were under the rule of the chief of the eunuchs. And I'll just put this out there. Castration for males serving in the palace was quite normal in these ancient empires. And uh, as a matter of fact, many people believe this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And I'm one of them, Isaiah 39.7. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who have been born to you, they will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The prophet said, this is what's going to happen. And it happened. Now, I love you and I'm sympathetic to you and you always have a hearing ear and a friend here. But when you think about your bad circumstances and I tell you about his bad circumstances, kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? They haven't taken away your identity, your masculinity, forced you to have the name, bear the name of another God, force you to speak a foreign tongue, force you to have a new identity, force you to learn the dark arts, force you to learn uh, uh, divination, force you to serve the king that conquered your people with a smile and a good attitude and make straight A's. Kind of puts things in perspective. You know, I'm grumpy when I have traffic backs up out here on 35. And I feel like I'm being persecuted and I, I want to call fire down from heaven and ask God to help me out of my severe persecution. It's a little bit about perspective also when you read these stories. The situation that I've described to you is the situation in which God's people had to live out the reality that despite the mess they were in, God was in control. And that God will not only make sure that they survive, but God will make sure that His people who are trying to live out their faith prosper in the face of 
undesirable circumstances. That's an encouraging message for me. All right, let's get to avoiding defilement. It is often taught that Daniel and his friends lived a life of separation from the Babylonian culture. You've probably been preached this if you grew up like in my tradition. We preach separation, separation, separation from culture. And uh, when the story of Daniel is taught, you may have been taught that Daniel lived a life. He was in Babylon, but he was not of Babylon. And he lived totally separate from Babylonian culture. You know, after now growing out of Sunday school and studying the Word of God, what we learn is that's not true. Daniel totally assimilated into Babylonian culture. He wore their clothes. He spoke their language. He was part of the Magi divination team, ends up being the president of them shortly. Uh, He was totally immersed into Babylonian culture. He had no choice. That was his life. He had to function there. His whole life he would be a captive there. He could not live separate from them. That wasn't even a possibility. He was totally assimilated. But although Daniel and his friends assimilated, they would not abandon their faith in God. That was the line. Now, this is important to the story. They totally assimilated, but they would not abandon their faith in God because that is to cross a line which they will not cross. Is everybody with me? They totally were Babylonian at this moment, except they were not going to give up their faith in God. That's a line they will not cross. So they went along with everything that's being done in their lives, And they decided they would make a stand on one issue. Daniel 1 verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to devile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Here's where you see these words again in verse 9. Now God caused. God's doing something behind the scenes. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the king who has assigned your food and your drink. And why should he see you looking worse than the other men your age? The king would have my head if I let you make a stand on this food issue. Something happens between verse 10 and 11, and Daniel says, okay. He no longer approaches the chief official. Now Daniel speaks to someone else. He said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah. And here's what he said. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food, this rich diet that the king had prepared. So the guard took away their choice of food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now let me tell you what's happening in the passage. Daniel comes to the chief official and says, the king has given us all of this lavish food. 
I'm thinking of a Henry VIII banquet, okay? And he's going to fatten us up and make us healthy. And the king, through his generosity, is going to be so, so magnanimous that he's going to make us healthy and fit and smart. And he's creating a super race of young men here to rule his, to rule his empire. And Daniel says, yeah, but God's really the one in control of our life. So on this diet issue, it's really not about the food... On this diet issue, they decide they're going to make a stand right here. Because it's God who's really in control, and God's controlling their fate, not the, the head of the eunuchs, not the chief of staff, not the guard, not the king. So in a very private, not public, way, they're going to make a stand on the food issue. The chief official tells Daniel, no, I'm not going to give you a special diet separate from what the king, king picked this menu. You're going to, it's like being on an airplane. Here it is. You know, there it is, okay? Eat it. And they're like, no, we want to do so. So Daniel wisely speaks to the underguard and says, hey, uh, we're not trying to get you in trouble. We are confident in God that if you had let us have a different diet for 10 days, we're going to be healthier than anybody else in the program and, uh, because God's in control. And so we want a special diet, not permanent, 10-day test. How about that? And so the guard over them agrees to the 10-day test with a modified diet. So here's what you have to stop and ask yourself, because we get lost in the weeds when we read these stories. So we have to stop and ask ourselves this. Is the Bible teaching us to go and do likewise? Is the Bible saying to us we should all be vegetarians? See, Daniel was a vegetarian. This is the key. Now I need to go crazy and be a vegetarian. No, that's not the key to Christian living. Daniel makes a bold decision to confront the guard and the people in his life about his dietary uh, rich food the king has as a statement about who's in control of his life. Now let me be very clear from the scripture to show you the counterbalance to this. What you eat and what you drink is not a spiritual issue. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and we are no better if we do eat. And the issue right here is eating meat. Uh, he's like, okay, you want to be veg? Be veg. You want to be carnivore? Be carnivore. You want to be what you want to be? Be what you want to be. But don't think that it has a spiritual connection to making you more godly. That God has a demand, you know, got to search the scripture and find some secret diet code there. And if we do that, then we're going to be healthier. We're going to be, you know, superior to other people. Paul said food does not bring us near to God. Having a distinctive diet is not the point. What we should be asking ourselves as we read through these stories is where is God calling us to make a stand of Christian faith in our culture? That's the point of the story. Where are we supposed to draw the line and make a statement about who we belong to as we live out our faith in this present culture? See, I think we get it wrong. I think it's too often you've been told abandon culture. That just makes you a freak. That's all. And many of you grew up with those freaks. I did. It just makes you freakish. It doesn't make you more Christ-like. So what I'm saying to you is quite the opposite this morning. I've looked at the life of Daniel. He's totally Babylonian, except in this. 
where he decides to make his stand. For you, let's look at it this way. We are culturally Americans, right? We live in modern America, so guess what kind of music we listen to? Modern American music. Do you know what music your church prescribes for you to listen to? Whatever is culturally your music. Modern American music. Do I think some modern American music is probably out of bounds for you? Yes. Do I think it's all out of bounds for you? No. (laughs) We are Americans. You know how I expect you to dress? Culturally, like a modern American dress. Which means shorts and flip-flops, and that's it. You know? I mean, that's... Somebody asked me the other day, can I wear shorts to church? It's 120. Wear whatever you want to wear. Or whatever you don't want to wear. You and God work it out, okay? Uh, We're not going to, you know have a bouncer at the door saying don't wear shorts 120 wear your shorts who cares god doesn't care if you think god are there some clothes you probably shouldn't wear to church okay we'll use some common sense okay the overreaction of christianity to say abandoned culture is not the right reaction using Wisdom, if you learn anything from the book of Daniel, that God gives His people wisdom to make right decisions. That's what the book is teaching. Assimilate into culture, but ask God to help you make good decisions. We're modern Americans. You know what holidays we should celebrate? The modern American holidays, which include Halloween and Christmas and Easter and Independence Day. Memorial Day and Labor Day and any other day that Americans celebrate. Groundhog Day and Lincoln's birthday and Martin Luther King and anything else we celebrate, celebrate it. Why? You're a modern American. You're, 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 do what your culture, just go, go with it, okay? Why would we do otherwise? We are modern Americans. And God is not asking you to abandon your culture in order to be his follower Daniel did not separate himself from pagan culture. He took a stand on a single issue, a dietary issue, and he did it privately behind closed doors with the person in charge of his life as a statement to those in charge that it was God who was blessing Daniel and his friends even though they were in captivity. And when they saw them at the end of the test, and they saw how God was blessing them, there would be no explanation for their robust health except to say their God did this for them. That would be the only explanation. They probably would go to the cook and say, have you been giving them something special? Look how good they look. And the cook's going to say, they don't even eat what I send. They're eating their own modified diet. Well, how is it they look so good? Then Daniel and his friends have an opportunity to say, Despite circumstances, God is in control. Our God is blessing us even in these uh, less than desirable, for an Israelite, circumstances. So I want to say to you something. Now, it's going to start getting a little more personal as we go. When others see you prospering, to whom should they attribute your success? Do your friends see you being blessed? Do your family members see that you're being blessed? 
Okay, when that comes up in conversation, is it very clear that God's the one who's blessing you? If not, are you finding an opportunity to say in those moments, man, you're getting promoted, man, doors are opening for you. You... Now listen, I don't know where our boys will end up, but here's the one thing we've consistently told our boys, God is opening those doors. And if God opens a door, you better think long and hard about saying no when God opens a door. Because you want to be able to tell the people around you, man, how did you... God did this for me. How is it that you're being so blessed? Nobody else is getting raises, but you're getting a raise? How did that... Can't find a house. You found a house? Where'd you find a house? God. We are called to live in a way that reflects glory to God for any success of our life. Some of you are really smart. Some of you young people are really smart. And if you're at the top of your class, you know it and everybody else knows it. This may be one of your few opportunities to give God glory. Now, I know you study your butt off. I know you study hard. But a lot of people study hard and can't make a C. If you're at the top of your class, somewhere along the journey, you need to stand up and say, I want to thank God, and I want to let you know that God's really blessed my life. And given me the ability to be at the top of the class. Some of you have athletic ability. And you're like, well, I work my butt off in the gym. A lot of people work their butt off in the gym and trip over their own feet. Okay? And so if you get recognized as a superstar somewhere along the way, find the opportunity to let people know that it's God who gave you those abilities. Some of you can sing. Some of you are good with numbers. Some of you know how to invest in the stock market. Some of you know how to do all kinds of things. You hear what I'm saying this morning? Who is it that's blessing you? And does anybody know it has to do with God? Because that's the whole game we're talking about this morning. Success is given. That's my fourth big thought. Here we go. For the third time now, we're reading that God gave something. We're almost done. God is at work. If you have perspective to see it. To these four young men, Daniel and his three friends, God gave knowledge and understanding and all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds pertinent to the story coming. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. Whoa, here's the big interview. They've been through Magi U. And now they're going to have a face-to-face -face with the king. This is the big interview. Here we go. Then the king talked with them. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. Congratulations, you're hired. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them in the interview, he found them... Ten times better. Now, sometimes we don't know how to pray. It's common. It's normal. Let me tell you how to pray, young people. 
There's a guy in the Old Testament named Solomon, and he didn't really know what to pray for, and he said, I think I need to pray for riches. No, that's not good. And I need to pray for famous. No, that's not good. I need to pray for a pop. No, that's a God of self. I need, and, and so he struggled. And finally he said, I know what I should pray. I should pray that God would give me wisdom. And when God gave him wisdom, then he knew how to make money, and he knew how to build, and he knew how to and he knew how pray for wisdom. If you want to know how to pray, one of the secrets to praying is to grab this story right here and get down on your face and say, God, if it's not presumptuous, <laughs> I want to be ten times better than everybody else. Why not? Uh, go big or go home. Is that what you're saying? Go big or go home. If you're going to pray, remember, you're praying to a big God, the king of the universe, and he can do more than just bless you. He can tenfold you. So just go ahead and pray big. Don't just pray for your job. Pray for your dream job. Don't just pray for a blessing. Pray for a promotion. Ten times better than all the magicians. Now you're getting to understand who they're with. The magi. Magician. All the magicians. All the enchanters. All the witch doctors. All the voodoo people. All the star people. All the nut jobs, all the horoscope writers, all the, you know, he's with that whole crowd. Ten times better than anyone in the kingdom. And Daniel remained there, statement on his longevity, which we're going to get all the way through King Cyrus, which is a whole nother empire. All right, let me wrap this thing. Sure, when Nebuchadnezzar interviews them at the end of three years, Nebuchadnezzar thinks this is all my doing. I invaded another country, I took them, I chose them, I enrolled them, I re-educated them, I gave them new identities, I fed them from my own table a certain diet. Look how handsome they are, look how beautiful they are, look at those abs, look at those teeth shining, look at that flowing hair, look at their genius. These guys can solve math problems, they can, they can decipher legal issues, these guys can tell the future, man... Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I did that. But we all know the real story, right? God's doing that. And King Nebuchadnezzar in the coming chapters is going to find out the secret you already know. He thinks he's doing it. He's about to meet God in the coming stories. Daniel and his friends live at a time when God's people were defined by a distinct ethnic people, Jews, and a distinct political entity living in a distinct border in a distinct country. And so if you would say God's people, everybody knew it's that little group of people living right there and they're culturally, religiously, politically defined as those people. The same is not true today under the new covenant. You live in a different period under a whole different set of rules under a new covenant Today, God's people are the church of Jesus Christ. And the church of Jesus Christ, if you want to modernize this story now, we are not all the same ethnic people, so it's going to look differently. We do not all have the same political identity. And when I say that, y'all all think Republicans and Democrats. Do you realize the people I show you every week, some of them are in socialist countries. Some of them are in monarchies with kings and queens. 
Their politics looks nothing like your politics. And yet they're still God's people? Oh yeah, they're still God's people. Because God's people are not defined by that anymore. God's people politically can be very diverse. God's people are not all the same color. God's people do not all speak the same language. God's people do not all live within the borders of the United States within a defined geographical boundary. It's hard for us to get mentally out of that. God's people are all over. The latest study by Professor Jenkins out of Baylor University, he's written a book about the future of Christianity. If Jenkins is right in his analytics, and I think he probably is, if Jenkins is right, then the future Christian is a 15-year-old female with brown or black skin living in poverty in a village in Central South America or Africa. That's where Christianity is going. The next explosion of Christianity will be in the Southern Hemisphere, not the Northern Hemisphere. He's got the statistics to prove it. And if Jenkins' analytics are correct about where Christianity is going in the next 25 years real near history, if he's correct, then our success in reaching the world with the gospel demands that Cornerstone engage in a global discipleship philosophy right now. So when you wonder, what are they doing here every week? That's what we're doing because we realize where it's going. At the same time, we refuse to give up on America. Amen? We can't give up on our family and our community. God has us here for his purpose, and his purpose is to make disciples. So the American church finds herself in a strikingly similar position as Daniel and his friends. We find ourselves living in post-Christian America in a toxic culture that is at odds often with our faith. The God of American culture is not the God of the Bible. The God of American culture is the God of self, and the God of self demands a worship of self-gratification. That is our cultural God. Self, and self is worshipped through self-gratification. Don't judge me too harshly if I post a selfie this week, okay? The predominant paradigm that conservative Christianity has told the church is resist, culture, separate, and withdraw. Now I want to tell you that is not the only way to deal with culture. Daniel shows us something very different. I don't have time. My time's already gone this morning, so let, let me bring it to a conclusion. For those of you that are interested, uh, I'll get Jesse uh, to post this for us. There's an author uh, named Niebuhr, uh, N-I-E-B-U-H-R, I think is the way he's about Niebuhr. Niebuhr wrote a book called Christ and Culture. And Niebuhr is like he's the, this is the guy on this topic. He says there are at least five ways, maybe more, that the Christian church has historically dealt with culture. Uh, that fight or flight separate from culture is only one of about five different ways that you can identify the church family has dealt with culture. 
we, we call that fight or flight approach Christ against culture, where Christianity always sees culture in a hostile lens, which just isn't, isn't true. I don't see that. Uh, there is the Christ of culture, that means to embrace your culture, which is the opposite of the first one I mentioned. Christ above culture, uh, that's that culture and Christ work together. That's Thomas Aquinas' approach. Uh, Luther's approach was the Christ church paradox, that you're to obey the government, you're to obey the law, the scripture is clear on this, and you're to obey Christ, and it's a paradox that we have two authorities that we have to obey. That was Martin Luther's model. Of course, that's the one that got us Nazi Germany, too, because the government said to do it, everybody did it. So I see that one as really dangerous. you got to kind of, you know. Uh, there's another one, uh, which is Christ transforming culture. That was John Calvin's model. He said that's the one we were to use. And uh, use all, uh, later in history, they used Oliver Cromwell as an example of that Christians are to transform culture. All I want to say is this. as I cl- My goal is not to argue with which approach is right this morning. That's probably a whole other sermon. My argument to you this morning is there are different ways for Christians to interact and deal with culture you will find yourself at tension with culture. There's not only one way to deal with culture. Daniel clearly fully assimilated into culture. Yet Daniel knew at some point there would be a place where he would have to draw the line and make a stand of faith. Let me remind you, you're not only readers of stories, Everyone here this morning is a writer of a story. You're living out a story right now. And when you tell a friend about yourself, you're telling a story. You have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Matter of fact, when you get to the end, somebody will probably stand like me and tell the rest of your story. In your story, there are characters. Parents. Friends, enemies, hopefully some disciples. If you are a Christian, then your story has a redemption chapter in it. Very unique chapter in your story if you're a Christian. And that chapter shapes all of the chapters that will follow. I would even go so far as to say that this morning in church... There is a part of your story that's being written this morning. The decisions you make today will affect all the upcoming chapters of your story. Before we pray, let me ask you a question. Is it your goal to yield control of your life to Christ? Is it your desire to be a part of God's plan? Not just a consumer here on earth, but to be a part of something supernatural. To be a part of why you were created. Let me ask it this way. Do you want to be a part of God's work on earth? If so, when do you plan to do that? Like this week or... When you get old, you're thinking at some point I'm going to serve the Lord at a university. I had some kids maybe, maybe then. 
people who are ever having kids are thinking, like, when I get old, like pastor and these guys, maybe I'll start serving Jesus, man. I mean, I know in your heart you would all say, yes, I intend to live for the Lord. My point is when do you plan to start that? Might I suggest right now is the moment. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. A moment of prayer before we go home. In the stillness of this moment, I want to say one thing to those who need to receive Christ and one thing to those who are already followers of Christ. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, some of our church leaders in the back of the room right now standing against the back wall, if you've never received Christ as your Savior, why don't you slip out of your seat and go back there and just extend your hand. Somebody's going to grab hold of your hand and say, do you need to be saved? And you're going to say yes. That's all you have to say, yes. And they're going to pray with you and take it from there. That's it. That's how simple it is. Say yes. If you've never received Christ, I want you to slip out of your seat. Go find one of those people standing in the back. Just extend a hand and say, this is my morning this morning. I want to live for the Lord. I don't know for sure that I'm saved and forgiven. And just slip out of your seat and go to the back. Nobody's going to embarrass you. Nobody's going to call you out. We have no spotlights to shine on you. It's going to be very private, very personal. I'll probably pray and dismiss the service just as you're finishing praying back there. So just no big deal. The big deal is that you say yes to Jesus. If you need to go, you go anywhere in these next few minutes and take their hand. To every Christian, I want you to listen to what I have to say as I lead you to prayer. Maybe your circumstances are not what you planned for. Can you acknowledge, though, in the midst of this unplanned moment that God is in control? Maybe your circumstances are less than desirable. Can you say this morning, though, I'm looking for God's purpose and I'm open to his plans? Are you willing to say, King Jesus, my life is yours? I'm not here just to exist and consume. I'm here to be your living image. Lord, give me wisdom. I'm in this culture. I'm part of what it is to be a modern American. But God, show me, give me wisdom to know how to live in this culture. There may be some lines that I need to make in my own life that I'm not going to cross. And you and God can talk that out right now. I want to say something to all of our professional people in the room, all of our working people. Why wouldn't you say to God this morning, after hearing a story about the Daniel, why wouldn't you say to God this morning, Lord, give me what you gave him. I want favor with my boss. God, I want you to give me wisdom. God, I want you to give me promotion. God, I want you to give me favor with my employer. If you're a young adult, why don't you say, God, I want you to open opportunities at the university. I have some idea, or maybe you have no idea of what you're going to study. Ask God to give you wisdom in these first few months of the semester so that you can get a direction going and pursue that. Not have to change major 17 times and get on the seven-year plan 
but that God would give you wisdom, he'd open doors, maybe internships, maybe research opportunities, maybe a mentoring. Ask God to show you favor. Ask God to bless you. You're his people. Listen, if you hold a position this morning, pray this prayer. Lord, promote me that I might promote you. (laughs) How about that? God, promote me. I want to promote you. Every Christian pray this morning, Lord, bless me that I might bless others. And by blessing others, God, I might bless you. Lord, let my life be a shining light in this community that I might point other people to your eternal light. God, our great King, you're hearing the prayer of all of your people this morning. God, my prayer is that you would hear their prayer and that you would grant their blessing and their promotion, that you would give them wisdom, that you would prosper them in their present circumstances, even though they may be undesirable. Let them see your hand at work through the lenses of the gospel. Lord, give us that biblical worldview to see that the military powers are not shaping history. You are. You are in control of our lives. Lord, make us a blessing. This week, Lord, let us engage with our plans to live for you. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.